All right, welcome back, everybody. We're going to do a podcast in the car. I just have a few things to say today, but uh, there's no distractions. There's no rain. The sun a bit. Uh, this little hurricane that's going up the coast has stirred things up a bit. Um, but something's big on everybody's mind, and certainly on your healthcare provider's mind, and those that work with the system is COVID. You know, the COVID virus that uh, we call coronavirus, we've called it everything else. I'm not going to get political, but it's uh, something we're adjusting to. I've had a podcast about the new norm. I've had a podcast about what we're doing, what we're hoping to do with both protection and the necessary job that we have to perform but we have to perform it safely and that's not just for the healthcare providers it's for um, the sorry, that was the sheriff that just passed me uh, it's for the patient it, it's, everything is patient centric there's access to care this is a concept it's a pillar uh, I could write a whole blog on this about what access to care is. It's so many things to so many people, and it has to do with your circumstance. So if you live in a nursing home, that's very different than if you're a 25-year-old otherwise healthy person. Hence, COVID. COVID is... Uh, it's in the younger folks. It doesn't seem to be as bad in younger folks. As we get to older people, COVID is uh, not nice. So what are we doing? Okay. In the clinic, we are pre-screening. Do you have a fever? Now remember, only about 30% of folks that test positive had a fever. Changes in taste, cough. Have you had uh, difficulties with shortness of breath, leg cramping? Have you traveled? I think you get the idea. We have a script, and we go down that script, and we're very deliberate with that script. The script is not to be prejudicial. It's only for one thing, protection of all. Okay. So in the clinic, we pre-screen you. And that is one of my least favorite words, is pre-screen. Screening is kind of an inhuman description of a necessary need. And the need in this case is to minimize risk of exposure and contracture. This is a, a, a wicked little virus. It's just everywhere. But isn't the flu? Uh, isn't so many other things that we confront on a daily basis everywhere? Disease states, diabetes, hypertension—you know, pick your your deal. But in the clinic, some things are preventable or can be reduced risk. We're going to wear a mask for a while. We're going to wash our hands like crazy. I've gone through more paper towels 
in the past three months than well we ran out <laughs> it, it, I, I think they quit making them I'm going to Publix right now I've got to get some things but uh, they won't have paper towels on the shelves where are they going these are just paper towels I thought it was bounty we had plenty okay washing our hands if we're not feeling well we're staying home we're wiping the rooms down, and another thing we're going through is a lot of this equipment, sterilization materials, and uh, time. You know, everything's slowing down a little bit. Now, that's inside the clinic. Oh, folks are still seeing those VIP visits, visits in the parking lot. Telemedicine, we just heard uh, recently, is expanding. And it's true that expansion of telehealth is going to be good, but the platforms are terrible right now. It's hard to do a telehealth visit. And when we start developing telehealth visits, we're in the Wild West. How do you do a physical exam? How do you determine what labs you need? How do you figure out best course of care? And how do you get that intimacy that you have to have with the patient? Because the patient-physician relationship or patient-provider relationship is built on trust. And in my world, with pain medicine and addiction, trust is important, but it's got to be verified. Uh, where have you heard that before? Yeah, we, we need in-person visits. So telehealth and telemedicine is going to be a tool but it's not going to be the end all. You're going to have to have face-to-face -face visits. We can do it safely. So in the clinic, we're taking a lot of precautions. I don't wear gloves unless I'm doing a procedure or something like this. Uh, they're just more trouble. There are some uh, reports and articles out there that gloves actually increase your risk. You end up not changing them or not changing them enough, not washing your hands enough, and they can be contaminated. And so you touch your face. You, you get the idea. Okay. So as far as precautions go, if one thing can be said about uh, COVID is we're starting to get common sense. The transmissibility of this virus makes us think twice about our previous things we used to do like shake hands fist bumps hugs even some lollops little ladies in pain like a little church hug every once in a while and that's that's just part of it i mean that's just part of our culture it's our calling it's our calling to connect all right procedures what are we doing with procedures I'm back at it. The question mark that everybody had was, what about steroids? Are you going to use steroids? Well, yeah, I'm going to use steroids. Back in March, when they started talking about that COVID storm, the uh, inflammatory molecules, cytokines and others, that cause in cause all sorts of secondary end organ damage and they wreak havoc uh, are going
going to be as responsive to steroids as is the inflammatory position in your back when we do an epidural inject steroids. So I'm using steroids. The risk reward is, are you immunosuppressing? Are you making somebody more likely to get uh, COVID? I don't think there's any data that can support or refute steroids at this time. So I'm just saying that if I can use non-steroidal preparations, which there are many, uh, Toradol or Ketorolac um, and others in the proper location, I can't use Ketorolac with spinal injections in the central axis. But I can sure use them in trigger points, occipital nerve blocks, and that sort of thing. It's a talking point with your provider before they do procedures. What what are you using? Just ask them what they're using. The other thing is um, pr- procedures are procedures. Uh, they can take a course of their own. They can have a life of their own. I was really good until I got that trigger point injection. Now I can't walk. Well, it's always patient selection, isn't it? And it's the responsibility of the individual receiving to make sure they have informed consent. So if you're getting an injection or you're providing an injection, everybody knows where they're at. They're on the same page. The informed consent is real. All right. Well, as far as COVID goes, that's kind of an update. Hospitals are going to be different than clinics. I'm giving you the clinical perspective today in a medical practice that is so familiar to you you walk in you sit in the waiting room what what we we don't have a waiting room anymore you're right and we have very specific bathrooms we give patient those restaurant pagers and they sit in their car now because the waiting room is a social distancing trip it it's like people lose their mind sometimes when they walk in to a stressful environment and they just forget all this stuff and they don't i've had patients not use a a mask i had two today come in that said they just got tested for covid because they have a fever please call ahead if you have a question mark okay just call ahead uh it gets everybody uh, all puckered up i gotta hit a stop sign again okay i got through that intersection i just passed a new a veterinary hospital slash office. It's called Aloha. That's what it's called. Uh, I think that's good and that's bad. Does that mean goodbye, my little friend? Or does that mean hello, my little friend? I I don't know. We're in the middle of North Carolina, and there's a picture of a dog with a uh, lay on his neck and um, 15 hours from Hawaii. Back to the subjects. The uh, concept of opioid choice is one that is more difficult than many people understand. I'm going to go through two things. The pro-drug and the pure mu opioid agonist. That's kind of the way to put it. Okay, a pro-drug. A pro-drug is acted upon to become active. For example, hydrocodone is acted on 
by an enzyme in your liver called CYP2D6. It's metabolized to hydromorphone. Hydromorphone is active. If you don't have a lot of 2D6, I think 5% of Caucasians don't have a lot, well, hydrocodone is not the right choice. All right? Oxycodone, it's more of a 3A4 drug metabolized by CYP3A4 in the liver. It is not a prodrug. Its metabolites are oxymorphone, uh, nor oxycodone. There's a few others, but it is a pure mu opiate agonist and a kappa agonist. It means it activates. Agonist means it activates. That's a, uh, I think, a pretty good way to put it. So if you have in your receptor system the place where the drug goes to work and it has a name like mu and kappa there's others you look at the drug you're giving is it a pro drug or not he says that the hydrocodone does nothing well it might not because it's a pro drug and he doesn't have the uh, proper enzyme in the liver to metabolize it to the active end you'll get some activity but not what you want out of a hydrocodone because you start increasing the dose you increase the side effects the unwanted side effects constipation a few other little uh, jewels that uh, cause an unsuccessful experience with an opioid but let's just say you pick a 3a drug that would be oxycodone yeah, but it's not pure mu opioid. It's got kappa activity. That's why we call them perky perks, Percocets. Um, kappa is kind of stimulatory, and people somewhat like that. It gets them a little more um, alert, I'll say. I'll tell you what, in my neck of the woods, oxycodone is very, very popular. To the point that people um, become not obsessed, not aggressive, but very persistent to get that drug. I don't see so much of that with hydrocodone. I don't see that at all with morphine. And in the addiction world, I just don't see many people seeking out morphine, for example... Morphine is broken down into two metabolites. One is uh, excitatory. One has some activity. So in the elderly, you have to be aware of that. You have to, to understand that morphine may be a little unique if you have renal failure. You're not throwing off all the metabolites that are excitatory and undesirable. But when you go right back to it, oxycodone seems to be tolerated pretty well by almost everybody, including the elderly. Okay, so the point is your liver can play a huge role in the effectiveness and the overall result that you would get from an opioid. And I just use those two examples. There are others, but there are some others that are not so good. Demerol, for example, that's a historical drug. It's going away. It's out of hospitals now. Its metabolite is normaparidine, and that can accumulate, especially in renal failure, and you can have seizures from that. I 
have yet in my career to see it. But it's been described, and it's been described those in renal failure that just can't throw off that normopyridine. It also has a neuromalignant uh, syndrome that um, occurs with MAOI inhibitors, which we hardly ever use anymore. But just to know these idiosyncrasies of these drugs is to know how to best use them. In fact, the story about Demerol and its potential toxicity is uh, a a daughter of a very prominent uh, attorney showed up in the ER and I think it was an intern. I don't think it was a med student, but God bless him, you know, he was just trying to help out. Something was... So the, the problem that this young lady had, I don't recall, but she got Demerol, and she was on an MAOI inhibitor, um, monoamine oxidase inhibitor, and she had uh, a neural malignancy, it's uh, hyperthermia, it developed a life-threatening and then life-taking event. And this intern or med student or whatever it was, uh, it was back in the day, back in the day when I trained, uh, he was sleep-deprived, big time, uh, hours and hours and hours, not getting enough sleep or restorative sleep. And so what eventually became mandatory training limitations uh, falls from that one event. A, a grieving father, attorney, uh, rightly so, pointed out that uh, these doctors in training were going too many hours and they just lost track of the little things. In this case, a big thing. But it was subtle. Or maybe the provider of health in that ER didn't know. I, I can tell you there are consequences. When you take these drugs... Know thy drugs, and I'm speaking to both healthcare providers and patients. It's in the patient's responsibility to know what they're putting in their mouth. I can't tell you how many times I talk to a patient. Well, what are you taking? I don't know. It's this little yellow pill. Well, I don't know what a little yellow pill, uh, little yellow. I play a physician on TV. Whatever. It, it's turns out to be Norco or hydrocodone, eh, or it could be a variant of oxycodone that's generic. I don't know. So be very aware of what you're taking. Those product inserts from the uh, pharmacy are good, usually probably really good, but I'm not sure they're updated very often. Just be aware. Dr. Google is awful. Be careful what you read on Google. Uh, and finally, the informed consumer is the safe in, uh, consumer. Okay, how about the healthcare provider? <laughs> the informed health care provider is the safe healthcare provider. This is the opioid epidemic. This is the opioid crisis, whatever you want to call it. Remember, I've said this. We have three uh, crises right now. We have pain, insufficient pain treatment, that's crises, 
Um, overtreatment with opioids, it's not from us people, it's fentanyl heroin. It started back in the day, I suppose, with the fifth vital sign and everything, but we also have the COVID crisis. So we got to juggle all these things and we need your help. So walk in to the healthcare provider's office prepared if you have to write things down. I know, I do it too. I walk in and I forget half the things I want to ask or half the things I wanted to say that might lead to a positive, productive outcome. It's just the way it is. It's human nature. And then it's not always a good idea to call back and ask a lot of questions because what you don't see is the hundreds of phone calls we get a week from different uh, patients, folks, family, whatever. And, you know, fielding those, that's got some liability. We're not there. We're not looking at you. We're not, you know, in a direct approximation of your problem, and we're getting a description, and it may not be accurate. So just remember, the phone is not always the best way to go. If you think you need to go back in and speak with the healthcare provider, do it. That is the safest thing you can do, especially with drugs like uh, opioids. Okay, I think that's uh, probably enough. I um, wanted to finish up the series on geri- geriatric pain, which um, I appreciate you listening to. And this is... Uh, my destination we're at Publix so all right have a a great day and please send a review to iTunes it helps see me and they say it doesn't help you rank but I know it does and please just kind of bear with us as we get through uh, the summer and we're all super busy with this COVID mess and we'll have answers I hope this fall so thanks Keep yourself safe. Bye.